All right, good evening, everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1? We are working our way through this epistle. And um, let me just review a little bit. Peter is a, uh, a pastor, and uh, as a pastor, he had a shepherd's heart for the flock of God. Not only did he want to warn them against the dangers of false prophets who would come in and sow false doctrine and try to destroy a church that way. So not only was he, uh, you know, wanted to warn the church against false prophets, but he was also very concerned about the dangers of false professions. You see, as a pastor, Peter was painfully aware that in any given church on any given Sunday, the congregation would contain people who had professed faith in Christ, but we're not really saved. Read Titus chapter 1, verse 16. And therefore he wants to warn them to make their calling and election sure, lest they stand before Jesus someday and hear him say those awful words, depart from me, I never knew you. Careful self-examination, guys, to determine the genuineness of our faith, as we said last week, is not only critical, it's commanded in Scripture. Uh, 2 Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're really a Christian. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.31, if we judge ourselves, we won't have to be judged by God someday. Some good, honest self-examination, some self-judgment, if you will. Uh, am I just talking the talk or have I really made a commitment to Christ? Best to get that worked out now rather than when you die, it's off the table. There is no confession there's no repentance. There's no forgiveness. Your fate is sealed for eternity once you die. And so Peter's consumed with this. He's a pastor. All pastors who are uh, good men are troubled by the reality that some in their church, uh, some of the congregation are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ someday on the day of judgment and hear him say, I never knew you. You, you weren't living for me. You, you didn't really uh, have me in your heart. I wasn't the Lord of your life and so on. And so that was weighing on his mind. And so he transitions quickly in chapter 1 of this epistle from talking about the blessings that are ours in Christ, verses 2 to 4. He um, transitions quickly, though, to a warning directed at all, at all professing Christians to make sure they are really saved, really in Christ. And uh, that's why he started out this epistle by encouraging, as we said, actually the Greek is he was commanding us to stay close to the Lord, uh, you know, to stay close to the Lord so that his character will grow in us. Uh, the goal of Christianity is to become more and more like Christ. 2 Corinthians three eighteen: be conformed by the Spirit more and more into the image of Christ. Well, if that's happening, and you can look back and say, well, gee, I've really grown in the last X amount of months or years. I mean, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm certainly different than what I once was. I don't have the same attitude towards life. I don't have the same worldview. I don't have the same goals. I mean, if, if that's happening, praise God. That's what Peter's talking about. Make sure there is growth taking place. Because if there's not, and it's just kind of a verbal thing, you know, where a lot of folks, they come to church and they hear the word, but they don't do anything about it. And John said, you're deceiving yourself, okay? Because if you're really a Christian, you're going to want to hear the word taught and go out and do something about it. Not that we're, 
going to be perfect this side of glory. But, you know, there's a heart there that goes along with being a true Christian, okay? And so uh, that's just a good thing to keep looking for, keep drawing close to the Lord. Not only, Peter said, will that uh, help to guard us against the devil's condemnation. If you read verses 5 to 7, he said, you know, keep adding these things to your Christian life. Because if you do, what happens is, if you're growing and walking in, in, in holiness and in the Spirit, uh, the devil is not going to be able to condemn you. That's his whole thing. He wants to condemn you. He wants you to feel worthless. He wants you to feel as though God doesn't love you because you keep blowing it, that kind of thing. And if he can get you to live carnally, then he can condemn you. And then he can peel you away from the Lord in the sense that he's neutralized your walk and your effectiveness. And uh, so Peter says, look, if you stay close to the Lord, you're, you're going to guard yourself against the devil's condemnation. And uh, it's going to assure you that your faith is real and your salvation is sure. Now, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Again, we're just reviewing a little bit. I believe what Peter is saying primarily is that if we keep living godly lives, uh, lives that are being conformed into Christ's image as believers, we're never going to stumble. And I think he probably has in mind stumble into doubt. Uh, again, if you're walking with the Lord and you're growing in your faith, uh, the devil is not going to be able to tell you, well, you know, you're, you're not even, you're, you're not a Christian. You know, how could you really be a Christian and, and keep doing the things you're doing? Now, sometimes we can, you know, be really saved and still be wrestling with sin or a bad habit, that, that happens. And we just have to keep, you know, walking with the Lord and keep praying. And when you blow it, you confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin, and so on. Uh, but I'm just saying, though, it's a lot harder for the devil to condemn you and make you feel like you're not even saved if you're walking in the Spirit and living in obedience. So I think primarily when Peter says, look, if you keep doing the things I've just told you, verses 5 to 7 again, uh, well, you know, you're going to make your call and election sure and uh, you're never going to stumble. The devil's never going to be able to trip you up and get you to fall into doubt or into um, a fear with regard to the genuineness of your faith. The, the word for stumble, though, as I was reading this afternoon, uh, is a word in the Greek that could also mean to err, to err. If you stay in the word, which is what he's been harping on, and you keep walking in the spirit, well, the devil's not going to be able to get you to err. You know, you walk off the path. Or get into false doctrine, so to speak. He'll have a lot more to say about that later on. So verse 11, if you do all these things, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. You've been taught the word. So I'm just reminding you of what you already know. Verse 13, yes, I think it is right. As long as I am in this tent, this physical body, to stir you up by reminding you. Let me stop there. The term to stir you up is a compound word in the Greek and means to arouse completely or to thoroughly awaken. And the idea is awaken from lethargy, drowsiness, sleep, spiritually speaking. Uh, even true believers in Christ can become sluggish at times, lethargic, even fall asleep in the light by not remaining vigilant and watchful for the Lord's return, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. And if it wasn't possible for a Christian to kind of fall asleep in the light, he would never have told us, don't do it. 
Okay, don't do it. All right, verse 14. Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. We talked about this last week in John 21, verses 18 and 19. Jesus described to Peter how he was going to die by crucifixion. And to Peter, the Holy Spirit's probably speaking to his heart. He knows that his death is nearing, and that's why he says this. I know my departure is at hand, he, he goes on to say. Verse 15, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. He wanted to remind them of the things he had been teaching them for so many years. And um, I think that what he's talking about here, the reminder he has in mind, are his two epistles. I'm writing this stuff down so you can read these epistles. When I'm gone, you'll have them, and you won't forget what I've always reminded you of. It could also be that he had in mind, in part, uh, Mark's gospel. Because scholars believe that uh, Peter gave to, to John Mark uh, a lot of the information that became his gospel. Some even tongue-in-cheek refer to the gospel of Mark as the gospel of Peter because they, they see that Peter had a lot of input into that gospel. Peter was an eyewitness. He was there. And so, uh, you know, John Mark was just a little guy uh, into all when Jesus was conducting his ministry. So Peter, many believe, supplied a lot of the information that became Mark's gospel. So Peter is saying, look, I'm, I'm going to be going away soon. I'm going to be, I'm going to be dying. The Lord has showed me that my time is coming. Uh, but I want you to always remember what I've taught you. Therefore, I'm going to write them down, First and Second Peter, and probably the Gospel of Mark. And uh, did Peter know? He was writing down New Testament Scripture when he wrote his epistles. I kind of believe he did. I kind of believe he did. I think that the Holy Spirit had really impressed on his heart the need to write these things down. And I believe that uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter knew what he was writing would become New Testament doctrine. It would be written Scripture. Uh, oral tradition and, and, and verbally uh, talking to people about the Lord is, is important. But written scripture, that which is written down, well, Peter knew it would remain. And again, after he was gone, his readers could be reminded about what he told them while he was still alive. Of course, uh, we're thankful that his writings have endured down through the centuries. Yeah, I don't know how long Peter thought his writings were going to last uh, I'm sure he hoped that they would last, uh, you know, for the next few years, maybe to the end of the first century. But we're thankful that the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, has, uh, has allowed them to endure. In fact, all the writings of the New Testament to endure down through the centuries that we as Christians in all the church age could read and be benefited by Holy Scripture. But I think, guys, Peter especially seems to have, uh, have had in mind prophecy, prophecy and specifically prophecy that deals with the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom. Now, it seems that that was what he most wanted, to put them in constant remembrance of. And I say that because he mentions the experience he had with Jesus, along with James and John, on Mount Hermon, when Jesus was transfigured before them and Moses and Elijah appeared to them. And this Mount of Transfiguration experience uh, really impacted Peter in a very powerful way as he and the others got a little preview 
of Jesus' second coming glory. That, that was the idea. Now, if you doubt that, uh, well, you can turn to Mark 9. I'll give you one passage to look at. This Mount of Transfiguration, we talked about this last week. Mount of Transfiguration experience really impacted Peter in a powerful way because he knew it was a little preview of Jesus' second coming glory. Now, we're not guessing about that. Uh, I'll just pull out from Mark. I think Matthew and Luke also include uh, the transfiguration account. But Mark 9, verse 1, And he, Jesus, said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death, listen, till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain, which is why I believe it was Mount Hermon, and not Mount Tabor. Mount Hermon is 92 or 300 feet high. Tabor is about 1,900 feet. This is a high mountain. He led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, <laughs> such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now, I must have read that, I don't know, a couple dozen times over the course of my Christian life. And then one day, I'm reading it, and it's almost like I never saw that phrase before. And I got a chuckle out of it, okay? Whiter than no, such as no launderer on earth could whiten them. That's pretty white, all right? <laughs> I mean, he was radiating like the sun. Remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, about his return? He said, and then, as lightning flashes across a dark sky from east to west, so will the sign of my coming be. I'm going to light the sky with my second coming glory. And so here, uh, they get a little preview of that. And with that in mind now, okay, with this experience that Peter had, along with James and John, with that in mind, Peter now relates what he saw on the mountain that day. 2 Peter 1.16 for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, that would be the Shekinah glory, on top of the mount there, where the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And again, last time we talked about, you know, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. Literally in the Greek it means sophisticated lies or well-crafted deceitful fabrications. The Greek word is a word we get our word myths from. Uh, we didn't make this up. You know, we didn't, we didn't give you, you know, a bunch of baloney. Okay, paraphrase. Uh, you know. We, we told you what we actually saw, all right? So Peter acknowledges that he was an eyewitness of Jesus' transfiguration. And again, think of the second coming, second coming glory up on that mountain that day. And even though he acknowledges that eyewitness testimony is important, especially in a court of law, we talked about that last week, our whole system of jurisprudence is based on eyewitness testimony. And it's important. It was important in God's legal system. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, a matter in court was not to be uh, settled unless there were at least two or maybe three witnesses. So even God incorporated that into his legal system. No doubt we picked it up from him. Okay. But um, 
You know, eyewitness testimony is important. He acknowledges that. But he also kind of implies it isn't always reliable. And we, again, talked about that last week. If you weren't here, check out the study. Uh, eyewitness testimony is important, but it's not always reliable. He goes on to say that we have something much better than eyewitness testimony. We have prophecy in the word of God that Jesus is coming back. Verse 19, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It's kind of interesting sometimes when what we're teaching on Wednesday night happens to intersect with what we're teaching on Sunday morning. This is one of those cases and you'll have to come back Sunday morning for a full explanation of what we're talking about here. We'll just give it a kind of a glancing blow tonight. But uh, when, he, when Peter said, and, we, uh, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, the Greek is literally, we have more sure the prophetic word. More reliable, guys, than the eyewitness testimony of man, Peter is telling us, is the prophetic word of God. God told us things in his word. In fact, roughly a quarter of the Bible is prophecy. Why did God fill his word with so much prophecy? He tells us in Isaiah 46 and some other places, I'll paraphrase, he said, I'm going to tell you things that are going to happen. Only I know the end from the beginning. So I'm not guessing. I know what's coming. All right. Only I know the future. And I'm going to tell you things before they happen so that when they do come to pass, you will know that I am God and this is my word. That's why he did it. Only I know the end from the beginning. He knows in the very beginning all that's going to happen in the future. Very important. We have the prophetic word which is more sure than any eyewitness. Again, God told us things before they came to pass to validate the Bible as his word, but also to uh, prove that Jesus Christ is his son. Because as we've been learning on Sunday morning, the father testified to who the son was, okay? Jesus gave testimony of himself, but you know, my testimony is uh, in a court of law, in the Jewish court of law, it's, it's not enough. How about my father? Of course, you have the testimony of John the Baptist, but he was a man. And the testimony of miracles, but they could be counterfeited by the devil, as we talked about. How about the testimony of the Father, who said, This is my beloved Son, twice, right? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to what he has to say. I have sent him. He is proclaiming my word, and so on. But do um, you realize that for almost 4,000 years, the Jewish prophets had been foretelling the coming of the Messiah. Now, lest you don't believe it was going on that long, because the entire Old Testament period was 4,000 years. And from almost from the very beginning, uh, Jewish prophets were proclaiming prophecy about Messiah. Uh, remember what uh, uh, Jude said in verses 14 and 15? Uh, Enoch, seventh from Adam prophesied the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon the earth? 
Job, the oldest book in the Bible, not the first in the cover, the oldest book in the Bible dating back to about 2500 B.C., he said in uh, chapter 19, verse 25, he said, I know my Redeemer lives, and someday he's going to stand bodily on the earth, and I am going to see him with these eyes, not the eyes of another. In other words, I'm going to be resurrected. Job knew an awful lot of eschatology for a guy that lived, you know, 2,500 years before Jesus came. So God has been declaring this since the very beginning, practically. And you have to understand that the prophecies concerning Christ, that we will really hit this Sunday, okay? So come on back. But um, in the Old Testament, God gave hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that had very specific details attached to them uh, about the Messiah, about his birth, uh, where he would be born, when in history who he would be born, into what family he would be born, uh, very specific things about his life, his death, and of course his resurrection. Read Psalm 16, you will not leave your Holy One uh, in Hades to see corruption and so on. Uh, the prophet Daniel even predicted the exact day that Jesus would present himself to the nation, which was April 6, 32 AD, Palm Sunday. The very day. Listen, God's word is sure, and it can be trusted. Peter says, you would do well to heed it. You would do well to heed it. Guys, again, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus' first coming and 500 concerning his second coming. And listen, an overwhelming number of these have already come to pass. Now, if all the prophecies of his first coming and many that deal with his second coming have all been fulfilled, listen, with flawless accuracy, well, does anyone want to bet <laughs> that the rest of what God has prophesied that is yet future won't come to pass with that same flawless accuracy? In other words, as Peter said, you would do well to heed God's word. And he has in mind the prophetic word of Christ's coming. You know, and he, he really hits his heart in chapter 3. You know, the end is coming. God's going to vaporize the universe, create a new heavens, a new earth, a uh, new Jerusalem where we're going to all live for eternity. Don't you realize this world is transitory? It's going to pass away sooner than you realize? Uh, what have you done to prepare for eternity? Have you given your heart to Christ is what he's driving at. Are you saved? He revisits what he started in chapter 1 to wrap up his epistle now. Are you playing games? Are you really saved? Because if you die and you find out then you weren't really saved, you can't change anything. Since all these things are about to be disposed of, what manner of persons ought we to be to, to be in holiness and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, in which the heavens will be on fire, and everything will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, but we look for a new heavens and a new earth, a, a new city where we're going to live for eternity. That's how he ends his epistle, by really driving that home. And he says it right here, guys, look, I was an eyewitness of Jesus' second coming. But that doesn't mean anything. We have God's word, prophecy. That's the real issue. That's really sure. You know, guys like me, we could, maybe we imagined what we saw. But God's word never uh, says anything that's not true. And therefore, you'd be wise to heed 
what God is saying. Get saved if you're not, and start living for the Lord if you're, you're not doing so right now. And we know, guys, and of course we all love to read the Psalms and Proverbs, and how many times can you remember in both of those books that you know wisdom is affirmed, is, is explained and defined as those who listen to what God has said and then adjust their lives accordingly. Again, it's not wise just to be a hearer of the word, but not a doer. A wise person builds their life, you know, listens and then builds their life on obedience uh, to what God has said. And as Jesus said, that person is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rock was obedience, okay? Obedience to what he heard in church as the word was taught. A foolish man goes to church, hears the word, doesn't do anything about it. He's like a guy who built his house on the sand. And when the day of judgment comes, the one who has built his house on obedience because his faith is genuine, his faith is going to stand, he's going to be allowed to enter into heaven. The other person, well, his faith will crumble because it wasn't really genuine. It wasn't really genuine. Peter goes on. He goes on to liken God's word to a light. A light. He said, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Now, guys, I won't have you turn to these. You can write down the references. There are so many, I just picked out three, of scriptures that liken God's word to a light. Of course, the one we're most familiar with is Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How about Psalm 119, 130? The entrance of your word gives light and gives understanding to the simple. Have you had that experience? I know I have. Where I, after I got saved, and, and just as you're reading the word, all of a sudden it's like the lights have gone on. And now it's like life makes sense. It didn't make sense before because we're just fumbling around trying to live each day and just, you know, we don't really know why we're here a lot of times. And a lot of people still don't know why they're here. So just eat, drink, and be merry, party hardy, because, you know, who knows why we're here, but I'm going to make the most of it and just have a good time. But when I started, when I got saved and started reading the Word, all of a sudden, the light came on. I realized why I was on the earth, what my life was all about, how it was to be lived. It was all now for the glory of God. And, and, and that's what it was all about. Living to bring God glory, having a purpose. That was my purpose. And that's your purpose, right? The entrance of your words gives light. And it gives understanding to the simple. You don't have to be a great intellect. In fact, Jesus said, often the truths of God are hidden from the wise and prudent because intellectuals have a lot of pride, which blinds them to the simple message of God's word, a message that children can understand. I'm not saying kids understand all the word of God, but they know what they need to know to get saved. Jesus is God, came down, died for their sins, rose again the third day. Any child in our Sunday school program can rattle off the gospel. A simple truth that eludes some of the deepest thinkers and greatest intellects in our country because they refuse to believe the Bible is really God's word. Proverbs 6, verse 23, For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines, listen, in a dark place. The phrase dark place in the Greek is a reference to the murky blackness of the fallen world. Let me say it again. The murky blackness of the fall. That's where we live. In the murky blackness of this fallen world. 
A darkness, guys, a darkness of spiritual deception is the main idea. A darkness of spiritual deception that can only be penetrated by the light of God's truth. Look, we're living in a very dark world because Satan controls it and he's the father of lies, as Jesus told us in John 8. And as such, he has filled the world with his lies. Of course, he's made people think that his lies are the light that guides people through life. So the yoga and the transcendental meditation and, and all these other religious views and, 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 uh, and even the cults and the occult, uh, it's all presented by the devil to be light. But it isn't light. It's his lies. The only way to penetrate the darkness of spiritual lies is by the light of God's truth. And guys, the, the ultimate revelation of God's light, his truth, the ultimate revelation was the incarnation of his son in the human flesh. Turn to John 1, verses 4 and 5, and then verse 9. Verse 4, speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not extinguish it. The light of God's truth shines in the darkness of spiritual deception of this world system. And guess what? This, Satan can't do a darn thing about it. He tries to extinguish the light by killing God's people. That's what martyrdom is all about. But what he found out was the more he persecuted the church in the first century, the more it grew and was strengthened. So he's changed his tactics. I will give him that. He's, he's pretty clever. He's changed his tactics where he still fights against the church, Christians, and other parts of the world head on through physical persecution and martyrdom. But in countries like ours where we don't have that kind of persecution anymore, he decided, well, if I can't beat them, I'll join them. Peter's going to talk a lot about this starting next chapter. If I can't destroy the church from an outward assault, then I will infiltrate the church and corrupt it from within. Verse 9. He, Jesus Christ, was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You all know this, but in Scripture, light and darkness are used quite often as metaphors. Light is often used in the Scriptures to represent spiritual truth, as we're seeing it right here. Darkness is often used in the Scriptures to represent spiritual error or simply Satan's lies. Furthermore, in the Bible, God himself is called light in 1 John 1.5, and the devil is called the power or the personification of darkness. Guys, the conflict between light and darkness is as old as mankind itself because they both got their start in the Garden of Eden. Of course, God placed the first man and woman into this beautiful garden and gave to them his word. Now, it was only a few sentences at that time. It was in its embryonic state, if I could put it that way. It would grow and develop as God... His word, his revelation is progressive. In other words, it was given, you know, uh, as time went on more and more, you know, through prophets and dreams and visions and, and, and so on. God began to increase the knowledge of him spoken 
you know, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, you know, God who had different times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us how? Through his Son. Again, the ultimate revelation of God's truth was the incarnation, where God became man and stood in our midst, and those who saw Jesus face to face beheld God in human form. God is spirit. Remember we talked about this Sunday? God is, you can't see a spirit. But God, Colossians 1.15, um, the invisible God stamped his image on visible flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. The Father became visible by his Son being incarnated into this world. And um, Philip said, Lord, Lord, show us the Father will be satisfied. Philip, have I been with you so long that you would ask me such a question? Show me the show you the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. But God placed man in the beginning in this beautiful garden. Man and woman gave to them his word. But of course, it didn't take long for the devil to introduce his lies into the world, a world that had only known God's truth up until that point. And so Satan comes in and begins to uh, ask the first question in history, uh, has God really said, you shall not eat, eat of every tree in the garden, say, sowing doubt into Eve's mind as to what God had really said, challenging the validity of God's word, sowing doubt in her mind, did she really understand what God was saying? Had she misunderstood God? Giving then Satan room to get in there and begin to uh, deceive her, which he did. And so now, into a world that was once had only known God's truth, God's light, Satan introduces his darkness, his lies. And at that point, guys, light and darkness became locked, listen, in an epic and constant battle for the minds and souls of mankind. One of my favorite old-time preachers, Vance Havner, had some good things to say on this very topic. Let me quote him. He said, and I quote, We are living in the dark. We were born into it, and it was born in us. We were children of darkness at one time, but when we received the gospel, we became children of light. At that point, the darkness inside of us was replaced with light, but we found ourselves still living in the moral and spiritual darkness of this world, which is all around us. We are living at the close of an age that is dominated by the prince and powers of darkness, a world where men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But the night is far spent. The day of Christ's return is at hand. And yet it's always blackest before the dawn. The darkness has never, been, has never been more pervasive and persuasive in my lifetime than it is today in our nation. Not only do we live in the, in the darkest Christians, we've gotten used to the dark. We have all had the experience of walking into a very dark room where all we could see was blackness, but after a few seconds our eyes adjusted and we got used to the dark. This has happened to many Christians spiritually and morally. We are all experiencing a slow, subtle, and sinister brainwashing process that is gradually desensitizing us to the darkness. Little by little, sin is being made to look less and less sinful until the light that is in us is darkness. And as Jesus said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The result is we no longer hate evil. We don't abhor it. We've gotten used to the dark, end quote. And he goes on to make some other very good points. 
That's why the Bible admonishes us, Paul in particular, be light in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your light. Don't hide out. As I said a couple weeks ago, this room, a lot of light in this room because you are the saints of God and you're here. But this room could be looked at as a large basket. <laughs> we come here and the light shines, but if we only shine our lights here, it's like putting a basket over a lamp instead of putting it on a table where it can light the whole house. That's what Jesus meant by that. He meant, look, God has made you a light in the darkness. Now go out there and shine. How do I shine? By living like Jesus lived. By, by, by thinking the way he thought. I have come not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I do always those things that please my Father. Peter goes on. Again, he said, which you would do well to listen to what God has said in his word. His prophetic word primarily. Which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Listen. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Guys, the phrase until the day dawns is a reference to Jesus' return when he will establish his kingdom upon the earth and a new day will dawn for mankind. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Verse 1, for behold, the day is coming. So Peter's talking about a new day dawning. Malachi is talking about this same thing. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch, but to you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N. Let me stop there, okay? I had a guy in the church years ago. I forgot how the conversation went. But he um, made a comment about something. And, I and so I took him to Malachi. And when I showed him how that Jesus, well, right here, he's called the son of righteousness, S-U-N, he said, oh, that's got to be a typo. No, because S-U-N is talking about the dawning of a new day. See, the Jews always, and to this day, Messianic, uh, uh, Orthodox Jews, I should say, they believe that since the Garden of Eden and the fall of man, we've entered into a dark period, a night with regard to spiritual truth. Uh, this is the evil age of man's rebellion. They're looking for a new age when Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom. And that's going to be the dawn of a brand new day for mankind. Uh, mankind will finally know the light of God's truth. It will shine and spread throughout the entire world. In fact, Jesus said, you're not going to, the Lord said in the Old Testament, you're not going to have to say to your neighbor in the kingdom age, come, let's go to church so I can introduce you to the Lord. Because everyone's going to know about me from the greatest to the least. The knowledge of God will fill the earth like the waters of the sea cover it right now. And that's what we're talking about. That's what Malachi, he's talking about the day when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. It's going to be burning like an oven. Well, sure, his glory is going to radiate. All the proud people, they're going to be like stubble, burned up, destroyed, judged, okay, removed from the earth. But you, verse 2, who fear my name, the Son of righteous dawn of a new day for mankind the son of 
righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. If you study that passage, it's not really healing in his wings, but the, the rays of the sun is what the, is the idea, okay? Just the brilliance of this new day for mankind, there's going to be healing of the nations. No more wars, no, no more despots, you know, no more uh, election tampering, you know, no more corruption. The Lord Jesus will be the king, and he won't be elected every five or six years either. He's going to be the king forever. He's going to bring a new day for mankind. The Greek word translated morning star in 2 Peter 1. Uh, the Greek word translated morning star literally means light bringer, as in the darkness of man's rebellion will be ended, and the light, a new day of, of man's obedience to God as Jesus is on the throne, will start. He will be the, the morning star, literally light bringer. One author said, and I quote, Morning star was the name for the planet Venus, which precedes the morning sun in the sky and is used here for Christ, whose coming inaugurates the promised millennial kingdom. In Scripture, there are several places which refer to Christ as a star, and he mentions Numbers 24, 17, Revelation 2, verse 28, and there's a couple others if you want to come up here and get them. But um, Peter says, till the morning star rises in your hearts. Look, I don't want to confuse and, and all. Let me just try to say this. What I think Peter is saying, as simply as I know how, right now we have God's word in us, God's truth. Of course, the Spirit lives inside of us also as Christians. But so is the flesh. So is our fallen nature. So there's that war going on, right? Things you want to do, you don't always do. Things you don't want to do, sometimes you do those things, okay? Uh, we would like to say that our hearts are as pure and as bright and as holy as Jesus' heart was when he was on the earth. Now, when he comes to establish his kingdom, we're going to get our, glorif well, we're going to get our glorified bodies at the rapture, okay? And when that happens, guys... Everything of the flesh, our fallen nature, will be gone. We will have a brand new, a glorified body. What did John say? When we see him, we're going to be like him. So when the rapture happens, we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We see him face to face. Our, we'll have our glorified body. And then we're going to know him like we have been known. Uh, we're going to be as holy at that point as, as he is. And the light of God's truth is going to shine in our hearts in a way that it never has in the past. Again, no longer any fallen nature to corrupt our love for the Lord, our service for the Lord. 1 John 3, 2, we are now the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be fully in our glorified state. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, that same author I quoted a minute ago went on to say, and I quote, at his second coming, Christ will replace the perfect temporal revelation of Scripture with the perfect eternal revelation of his person. He will fulfill the written word and write it forever on the hearts of the glorified saints, end quote. So now we embrace the word. Now we try our best to live it. We don't always do it. In fact, we don't even understand all of it. There's some passages that are very difficult. Peter did say, you know, uh, we quoted it last week, 
uh, 1 Peter 3, said, you know, I know you guys were taught the word. In fact, I know you've been reading Paul's epistles. They're kind of hard to understand at times. But, but, but he's a great brother, basically, and, 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 and keep reading the, the word through him. But how would it be to be, listen, the incarnation, John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us? When we get our glorified bodies, that's going to be said of all of us. We will finally be the perfect personification of the word in every sense of the term. All right, back to 2 Peter 1. Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for moved is the same word that was used of a sailboat that was being carried along by the wind. These men who wrote down, gave, God gave prophecy to and wrote it down, it was no, not a private interpretation. They didn't decide, oh, I'm going to write this. And, uh, you know, no, the Holy Spirit moved them along, moved them along, okay? In fact, the word prophecy in the Old Testament comes from a Hebrew word that literally means to bubble forth, to bubble forth. But the idea was you were speaking on behalf of another. In particular, a prophet was someone who was a spokesman for God, unless, of course, they were a false prophet, and uh, he hits that pretty hard starting in chapter 2. But as the Holy Spirit, guys, moved each writer of the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, the writers didn't just take dictation. I think we've talked about this in the past. The writers didn't... God's Word is a miracle on so many different levels. But one of the levels is that when God moved in the hearts of Moses and David and Isaiah and John and James and all the others, and they wrote their epistles or they wrote their books. They didn't just take dictation. They were moved by the Holy Spirit, that's true. But the Holy Spirit let their own personality, the writer's personality and style, come through each book that was written, making sure, the Holy Spirit did, that the final product was absolutely error-free in the original manuscripts, the original handwritten books that each wrote. The classic evangelical position with regard to the scriptures, guys, is described with the phrase verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? Well, quickly, verbal inspiration means that every word in scripture has come from God. Now we say, oh, amen to that. The liberals don't believe that. Theological liberals, they don't believe that. They believe that people wrote down their own thoughts and ideas and, uh, you know, and they capture a certain spiritual quality or there's moral value to them, but they don't believe every word is inspired by God. We do. We have a high view of Scripture. We believe that God's word in its entirety, every word, verbal, inspiration, has been put there by God. Plenary means that all parts of the Bible are divinely inspired and authoritative. I think I told you about uh, a, a brother I was talking to at a conference one time, and um, he was uh, a Nazarene pastor. I didn't know anything about what the Nazarenes believed, but he went on to tell me that they believe that when the Bible talks on spiritual subjects, it's inspired. But when it talks on like scientific subjects, it's not inspired and subject to error. 
And of course, that was a capitulation to the scientific community and evolution, see? But that's not what we believe as evangelicals. We believe every word in the Bible was put there by God. There are no exceptions. And every part of the Bible is just as inspired and authoritative as every other part. Now, here's the thing. We talk about prophecy. We often make the mistake of thinking that prophecy only deals with foretelling or predicting the future. And certainly, that was part of what a prophet did when God sent them to speak on his behalf, to you know, talk about what was coming. They didn't repent, judgment, and so on. Yeah, that made up a lot of it. But most of what the prophets did when they spoke for God was to simply declare his words to his people. In other words, most of their ministry consisted not in foretelling, but listen, in forth-telling. In other words, speaking forth the word of God. And a lot of times it was exhortive. Sometimes it expressed his um, how, how um, happy he was because of their uh, worship and their obedience. Okay, There's a lot of things that God wanted to speak to his people. Some of it was predictive, but most of it was just speaking forth various things God wanted them to know. And uh, But listen, guys, here in verses 20 and 21 of 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, I think it's safe to say that Peter had the predictive kind of prophecy in view since he tied it to Jesus' second coming in verses 16 and 19. Peter tells us that no true prophecy ever came from man, listen, as an act of human will, but was in fact from the Holy Spirit, who used man as a mouthpiece through whom he declared his word. Turn to 2 Timothy 3 quickly. Of course, you know these two verses. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Of course, this just goes along with what we're talking about, so I'll bring it in, okay? But in 2 Timothy 3, starting with verse 16, Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man, or of course woman of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Peter says that eyewitness testimony is not infallible, but the word of God is infallible. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, it's infallible, and the word for infallible, guys, means incapable of containing error. The word of God is infallible because it was given by inspiration of God. As we've already said several times, inspiration is a translation of the Greek word theonoustos, which literally means God-breathed. All Scripture was God-breathed, is what Paul is saying. And the idea is that God breathed life into the Scriptures the same way he breathed life into the first man. Don't turn to it, I'll just read it to you. Galatians 2, verse 7. Then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground, he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. And what Paul is telling us, I believe, is that even as Adam became a living person, when God breathed life into him, well, so did the scriptures become living and powerful when God breathed life into them. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen. If all Scripture, didn't Paul say all Scripture, given by inspiration of God, right? If all Scripture has been given by inspiration of God and God is perfect, 
and incapable of error, well, it only stands to reason that all Scripture, all the Scriptures, all 66 books, are absolutely true, error-free, and perfect as God himself is perfect because they came from the breath of God. They contained the life of God. The Spirit was moving in human instruments, bringing forth his word, which was spoken verbally many times, but then written down and became our holy scriptures. But God supernaturally spoke through these men. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room the night before the cross? Many other things I want to tell you, but you're not ready to receive it, not yet. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll bring to your remembrance all things I have told you, right? John wrote his gospel, 90 A.D. He was a pretty old guy by that time. I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. He writes a whole gospel of detailed events that happened, what, 60 years earlier? That's because the Holy Spirit brought back to his remembrance everything that he needed to remember to write down. It was supernatural. The Bible is a supernatural book. All 66 books. They're perfect because they're inspired of God, and God is perfect, can't make any mistakes. Therefore, the Bible is absolutely pure, error-free, and perfect, as God himself is perfect. One more time, Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord, the word of God, is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. We have the more sure word of prophecy, right? making wise the simple. And guys, because God's word is perfect in its entirety, plenary, right? Not just parts of it. You got people today that believe this. These, I don't know if they're still meeting. The Jesus seminar, okay? These group of liberal scholars that vote on what Jesus really said and what he didn't say. So I'll give you one example. They took the Our Father. They've done a lot more damage than that. But they took the Our Father, and of course they have a system. And I'm doing this from memory. Uh, you know, a, uh, the different marbles, different colored marbles. They've lost their marbles. But, you know, you have a, uh, a, uh, a red marble means Jesus definitely said it. Pink, he might have said it. Gray, probably not. Black, no. So when they took the Our Father. To give you an example of what they do, Right. Out of the entire Our Father, the only words that they all agreed on came that Jesus spoke was Our Father. That was it. So there's a lot of liberals out there who believe, well, the Bible might contain some words from God, but there's a lot of stuff that's not from God. I mean, there might be good principles for us to use to live our lives, but, you know, God didn't really, you know, he Christians that think that you can study the Bible word by word, you know? That's ridiculous. You could even think that. Well, that's how they think, not how we think, because we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word. His word in its entirety is truth. Uh, every one of your judgments, righteous judgments, endures forever. Again, Psalm 119, 160. Because God's word is perfect, we can therefore confidently live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, as our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, apparently, Jesus was a verbal plenary guy. Okay? Warren Worsby said, and I quote, 
Peter discussed Christian experience in the first half of 2 Peter 1. And in the last half, he discussed the revelation we have in the Word of God. His purpose is to show the importance of knowing God's Word and relying on it completely. The Christian who knows what he believes and why he believes it will rarely be seduced by the false teachers and their devious doctrines. Peter underscores the dependability and durability of the Word of God by contrasting Scripture with men, experiences, and the world. He goes on, The best defense against false teaching is true living. A church filled with growing Christians, vibrant in their faith, is not likely to fall prey to apostates with their counterfeit Christianity. But this Christian living must be based on the authoritative Word of God. False teachers find it easy to to seduce people who do not know their Bible, but who are desirous of experiences. Worsby said, it is a dangerous thing to build on subjective experiences alone and ignore objective revelation from God, end quote. And so guys, now Peter is going to then start, starting with chapter 2, he is going to begin to address the dangers of false prophets and teachers in the church as we study chapter 2. You tell me if it doesn't exactly show what we're seeing in the church today. I mean, Peter experienced some of it in his day, of course. There were false prophets uh, in his day. But he and the others said that the closer we get to Christ's return, they would escalate. They would get ramped up. And that's why the Bible says you better know the truth. Because the lies are going to get more and more sophisticated. At one point being uh, joined with miracles, which Paul called lying signs and wonders. And if you don't know the word, you're going to be deceived. And so we'll look at that starting next time. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that your word is truth. It's light. If we walk in its truths, we will not stumble in darkness. Lord, we thank you. Give us an insatiable hunger for your truth, your word. And Lord, may we always allow it to light our path in life, that we not step off the path by getting into error and disobedience and carnality, but that, Lord, you will give us grace to stay true to your word, walking down the narrow path all the way to glory. So we thank you, Father. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.